this is Lori, and I am the founder and CEO of Inclusivity, and we are all about justice and sustainable fashion, and this is our podcast, Inclusiva Talks. And today we are really um, fortunate to be talking with Alyssa Rochelle, who is a filmmaker, and we recently previewed one of her films, which Alyssa, I want to get to that in a minute and hear more about your films and sort of your passions and your drive. But I'd like to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about your history. So how did you get to be a filmmaker? What was your creative path to get here? Okay, so I always had the passion of telling stories and educating people. So my very first passion, even as a kid, was journalism. So I loved writing, I loved asking questions, and I loved sharing the information that I've gathered with people. So that turned into my um, degree at University of Texas at Austin was broadcast journalism, because I also love being on TV. So <laughs> all that combined, I was like, okay, well, broadcast journalism is something that I need to pursue. So I also had a, you know, um, a passion for filmmaking. I wanted to be the next Spike Lee. I wanted to write, produce, direct, and act in my own stuff. Um, along with be a journalist. So I want to do all of these things, but I chose the path of journalism for my degree. I took a few RTF classes at UT, radio, television, and film. Still loved it. Uh, made a short film that wasn't too great. But anyway, I pursued that right out of school. Instead of making a resume tape and pursuing broadcast journalism, I said, you know, I'm going to go to my first film festival in LA, learn more about um, the industry, writing, producing, editing, a lot of those skills that I wanted to learn actually came in handy with journalism. So I learned edit, I learned uh, the importance of shots while in school dealing with broadcast journalism. So I already had some of those skills, but when it came mm -hmm. to covering scripts and breaking down scripts, I didn't know how to do that. So I learned that in my first job um, in Houston. And then I moved to LA, did more script coverage, more editing, learned more about development and production. And actually, I learned a lot about uh, foreign and international distribution of films, which at the time, you don't think that's important, but obviously it's a business. So you have to know how to sell scripts and or films as well. So I say all that to say, after that, I came back to Houston and I shot a few more short films, worked with a few people and honed that skills. So I kind of went away, found my way back into film. I say that but I tried to leave it and then it kept bothering me. So I went back to it. And <laughs> just say, you know what, I guess this is what I'm supposed to do. So that led me to short films and ultimately my first documentary. What I sort of love about that is that I talk to a lot of um, musicians and uh, visual artists, painters, and um, it feels like the same process because many of them say, you know, I, I have to do this. Like this is, yeah. it's not, I can't walk away from it. And my husband's yeah. an artist and he once said to me, if I couldn't do ceramics anymore and I couldn't paint, I would find something. I'd pick up a piece of paper or a rock, <laughs> you know, anything because right. I have to create. So if I had yes. to, I'd go create in the dirt with a rock if that was Absolutely. my only option. And Absolutely. it sounds like that kind of draw that you, you thought you weren't going to go that way. You thought you could do something else and it kind of pulled you back. Absolutely does. And that's what I, I remember my first internship right out of high school was at uh, Channel 8 in Houston, right before I went to college. And I remember the journalist saying, it's a bug, like it keeps bugging you. It's something that you, you're passionate about or will keep bugging you. And so even with film, it's the same, especially when you find your happy place and you're like, oh, like I've been, I'm, it's been confirmed that when I'm on set, that is like one of the most peaceful feelings. 
every time. It's so much work, but it's so peaceful. Like, oh, this is where I'm supposed to be. Or when I'm around other creatives, I'm like, we just vibe and you just kind of feel like, oh, these are my people. Like we're creatives and this is what we do. And we're quirky and we're weird, but we love it. So we get it, you know? So it's just so affirming. Yeah, absolutely. So sort of take us back a little bit and look back over your childhood. And when was the first time that you sort of thought, okay, I am a storyteller. Like this is a part of my passion, a part of my DNA. When my mom bought little post-it notes that were like made out of dinosaurs because I love dinosaurs and I would go and write song lyrics and then like go and sing them for her. Like I remember some of them were like, don't do drugs and all this other stuff. Like, you know, quirky little eighties kid stuff. <laughs> like just little songs. I was just like, hey, I wrote the song, wanna hear it? And like, I would do that and then write little short film, not short films, but short stories. And I actually still have them. My mom kept all of that stuff. Um, and then in third grade, I remember the third or fifth grade where our teacher um, challenged us to write a short book, like a children's book. Mm-hmm. And they said the publishers were going to come and look at it. And I actually still have it. And my mom sent it to me a few years ago. She was like, hey, you need to, you know, actually finish this book and like write, like publish it. So I'm like, I don't know about it. Like, I'm like, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to, author. she's been trying to get me to write a book for years. And I'm just like, ah. Filmmaker, I'm trying to do this, but anyway, there's probably another calling. That's another conversation, but that just having people fuel your creativity. I remember that so much, and actually, my mom kept buying journals for me, so I would just write ideas or like titles for stories, and that's it. And then, okay, the story would come after that, and character names, and what this person looked like and did. And so, even in the early age, I think that's pretty much where I what I remember mm-hmm. as far as storytelling goes it sounds like your family has been pretty supportive of this path yeah absolutely absolutely yeah one of the things I will I'm sorry no go ahead one of the things I will say I remember wanting to do so many different things I was a little older maybe like high school and I told my mom all the stuff I wanted to do and she I expected her to tell me which one I was like this is all I want to do so which one should I do and she was like oh you can do it all just Mm -hmm. Probably not the exact same time, but you can do it all. And I was just like, ah, it's not what I want to hear, but it's so encouraging. <laughs> Thank you. Like, no, you're supposed to tell me which one. And then now it's still the same. Like I'm 38 and I still have the same passions in all of those areas. And I was like, well, okay. You have to figure it out and pursue. That's, I, that's exciting. Yeah. Trying and so in high school, did you, were you in the film club? What was your, how did you sort of pursue this while you were in, in high school? It was actually a video production. So that started there actually. So I think junior, junior year where we had the announcements. And so we did the announcements on the TV. And then we would have um, like a student of the month for a senior student of the month, um, a male and a female. We would interview them and asked them why they were chosen for, you know, it was Mustang of the month. That was our mascot, whether it was their grades or their involvement. And so I, at that time, I was trying to mimic everything that like 60 Minutes or 2020 did. And like, oh, well, this person interviewed this person this way. So I would interview this person this way and walking down the field interviewing this person from Mustang of the month, you know, just trying to game, memorizing questions, looking down because that's what, you know, Barbara Walters did. I'm going to do that. So it was that kind of sparked it too. And also my introduction to editing was old school editing. It was tape to tape. 
which I thankful that I learned even in high school or college when I first went there we did tape to tape because I worked on the news station in college as well and then eventually when we got to my broadcast journalism classes junior mm -hmm. senior year that's when we actually started doing non-linear editing so I got a taste of Final Cut Pro I was like, oh, this is like heaven in editing. I don't understand this whole take to take log analog thing that we have to do. So tell me a little bit about that because I don't know very much about filmmaking at all. So what does that, what does that even mean? So now back in the day, and I'm pretty sure I'm skipping something, but like in the seventies, I know there was really take to tape. So they would film and they would have like the reel and they would cut it and then tape it. So I never did that, thankfully. But <laughs> for the analog and like the, yeah, I mean, I, I don't even know how they did it. Honestly, I wouldn't even, cause I mean, if you mess up, then you can't go back. Mm -hmm. You just made the cut. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I guess you could paste, paste it together. But for when I was learning, it was, you have an analog switch. And so you have a switch and you like toggle back and you push it and then you record or you cut and okay. you have another switch and then you push and record. So that's what we call uh, linear editing because you have to edit in Every, chronological you, order. You go through it and, yeah. and say, cutting here. And then oh you go gosh, through yeah. and figure out what it's going to be So it's all of that. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, it's crazy because I actually miss that sometimes when I'm trying to choose like one frame. That's yeah. not like, oh, it'd be faster if I just like did this real quick with my hand. But you know, you're learning all these different systems. So Final Cut Pro was like, I mean, you cut your editing time down by like half at least. So how does the editing happen now? Right now? Uh, so how, yeah. So what is the oh, new? Oh, there's, I mean, some people still use Final Cut Pro. Uh, linear, non-linear editing is just what everyone uses. There's so many different programs. For the documentary, I used Adobe Premiere okay. because that goes with, you know, Photoshop, uh, the whole entire Adobe suite. And I was familiar with that interface because I was familiar with Photoshop. So, but recently I've been dibbling with and dabbling with uh, DaVinci Resolve, which is another editing software, but I was thinking a little more advanced with color grading, which I had to learn how to do for the documentary. But um, so I, I think a lot of softwares are great, but those are the two that I go back and forth between. Okay. So, this brings you, so you went through journalism school. You started yes. um, really after that, it sounds like you pretty quickly thought filmmaking is really yes. where my passion is. Okay. Absolutely. And how did you get to, I, it, it sounds very challenging in, to me to think of a big story that you want to tell as a documentary. That just sounds like a challenging job. So tell us how you got to the first documentary that you've made, which is called Gumbo, mm -hmm. which I recently saw. And anybody who hasn't seen it, it's so good. Thank it's you. such a funny thing because it's about food. It's about right. one specific food. And yet the way you did it is so masterful and engaging awesome. and fun. And it's just a great movie. So tell Thank us you. a little bit about how you got to doing, how'd you get to that? So gumbo is a dish that I grew up eating. And so anyone who's grown up eating gumbo, you think that this is the only way to make gumbo. I mean, of course, like you think, you know, um, only people in the South eat it. Um, certain communities eat it. And you're like, well, this is what it is. And so my husband's family is not from Louisiana, 
but his uncle who was from Louisiana is married into the family is. And so I grew up eating it. He was introduced to it through his uncle who was married into the family. And so we were probably married for maybe a year. And I was like, oh, it'd be great if my grandmother could teach me how to make gumbo. And then my husband's uncle could teach him how to make gumbo. And we kind of like have a household competition in the house to see who can make it better. And then since I'm a filmmaker, I want to film every single thing all the time. So I was like, ah, oh, I want to videotape it. And then I'm in the kitchen thinking, and I was like, well, I mean, well, how does Uncle Greg make his gumbo exactly? Because I had it before. Like his gumbo was the second gumbo I ever had in my life, by the way. But again, when you grow up eating it, you eat your home, your household's gumbo only. So <laughs> I had his gumbo. I was like, oh, it's good. But there's little stuff that's different. So how do other people make it differently? Like I started asking myself and I'm like, I have no idea. Like, like how did gumbo even start? Like who created this dish? I don't know. Like I asked myself these questions. So the sheer curiosity about this dish, I started Googling and I was like, oh my gosh, people do put okra in it. Why don't we put okra in it? And I know my grandmother does not like okra. That's the only reason why. Um, <laughs> so I'm like, okay. But then she makes a separate okra gumbo, like I said in the film. And so I'm like, well, how did that come about? Like what, I have all these questions Googling and then I have people who've written articles, extensive articles about gumbo and then the history about it. And so I said, okay, I wanna interview these few people for sure because they know what they're talking about serious. And that just spanned like a web of other people that I want to interview who I felt could give knowledge and you know any type of expertise to this dish or even just the Creole and Cajun cuisine in general. So that's pretty much how it started. So when you started and you were just um, like, it was just you and your and, and your husband's uncle and you were starting to explore it. Did you, were you already thinking in your head, this could be a big story or were you thinking this will probably be something the family will really enjoy watching? So what were you thinking oh, I, sort of towards the beginning? I definitely thought I want to do a documentary on it. And I figured okay. this could be a way, one, for me to actually get a documentary under my belt as a filmmaker. So I definitely did, wasn't, thinking, oh, it could just be for the family. It was, I'm going to submit this into film festivals. Um, that's number two, film festivals number one was to get something under my belt. So I didn't, I mean, I, there was no budget in place at first. It was just, oh, well, I have my little camera. That's not like the best. And I'm not a cinematographer, but I do know how to turn it on and record and ask questions. <laughs> so, hey, you have to do what you have to do. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because my first, my very first interview, I was pregnant with my second kid. And my husband and I were going to Seattle, Washington for his college classmates wedding. And so I said, okay, real quick, since we're going in two weeks and I've been to Seattle once, he's never been. So we're, we were going up there two days before just to hang out in Seattle. And so I said, let me see if I can interview people for the film. Cause I mean, I don't like to waste time. So <laughs> I was like, well, since I'm there, let's have vacation at work. And so I reached out to like three chefs who cook gumbo there. One was from New Orleans, who was one that was actually in the film. He's originally from New Orleans, Anthony. And the other two um, weren't available at the time. But that was the very first interview I did. And my husband was there like holding the mic <laughs> for me. I put him to work and we're interviewing and it was great. So I was like, well, now I have to do it. So it was one of those things where I was like, oh, well, this, I'm committed at this point <laughs> since I did it. Yeah. One interview. Yeah. And when you started, before you started, did you know that Gumbo kind of had this big story? Did you know that it was such a big deal? Oh, before I started researching? Yeah. No, not at all. 
I mean, okay. it was just, that's, just, I mean, and that's why whenever I, people ask me what I was on before it was done and I say, I'm working on a documentary on gumbo, they say like the food and I'm like, yeah, the food. And they're like, okay, whatever. Like, like, what is that even like? Cause you don't, you have no idea how big it is. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's just one dish. If I were saying I'm doing a documentary on Creole cuisine, I think people would have been like, okay, that makes sense. Because it's so much, but I mean, again, that's so much. Like you could probably do a series on jambalaya. I mean, it's you know, but gumbo itself is just so much, and I didn't know all the influences it had in it until I was googling, and I said, okay, well, these are people I need to interview to give it some credibility as well. So, can you share a couple things from, that you learned during this process that were like, oh, well, that's fascinating. Oh, about I never heard of filet until. I was doing the documentary. Uh, some people put filet in their food, in their uh, gumbo. Our uncle does. My husband's uncle does. We don't. So I learned that. And of course, a lot of people have. So they're like, you never heard of filet? Nope. Not until I started doing it. Because again, <laughs> filet is from the sassafras leaves. Oh. So some people sprinkle it on at the end and some people put it in there while they're cooking. And does so it have a, a it does for me it does uh I know when I've had it for our uncle's gumbo I didn't taste it when he put it in there but when I went to restaurants gumbo uh ate their gumbo sometimes I could taste it it's depends on your palate I'm fine with it um I know my mother doesn't like it but yeah I probably wouldn't put it in mine if I'm making it for again by myself um that was a big one um I didn't know that people put oysters in their gumbo and it could taste good because I had that as well. Tomatoes was a big thing that I think there's also that too, where you have the big debates of okra versus tomatoes. So depending on what area you're in, particularly in Louisiana, some people are like, there's no way I put tomatoes in my gumbo. Some people are like, there's no way I put okra. Some people are like, no, you have to have okra in your gumbo. Like the, the debates are huge. And because I've done this documentary, it has changed my mind. I'm way more open-minded on gumbo, I will try gumbo at a restaurant more often now than I would before. Because before it was like, absolutely not, you know, gumbo restaurants are not good. They, they are though, because I've had it. <laughs> so yeah. I am more open to that too. So I, I've learned, I've learned overall to become more open-minded. I've also learned that, I learned more about ancestors and how they cooked and how important it was and how much they put into food not just money, but I mean, as far as what they had in their refrigerator versus what they had to do for preservation methods to be able to cook that food later on when it wasn't available due to the season. Right. So I had a greater, and still to this day, have a greater appreciation for those who came before us in cooking in general. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah. do you see yourself doing other um, gumbo, or not gumbo, but other food-related documentaries like is this something that you think oh it'd be fun to learn this or do you see yourself branching out into an entirely different filmmaking I don't think I would do a whole documentary there are definitely docuseries and show ideas that I have as far Mm -hmm. as you know um, talking to people within their culture and talking about certain dishes I don't see Mm -hmm. myself doing a a documentary unless I was called upon to do that right (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Called upon is different than let me just scrounge up some money and do it again. Yeah, it's, it's definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So would you be interested in doing a series where you did 
you know, 40 minutes on different foods? I would absolutely be open to that for sure. Absolutely. Because there's so much. And I think that's one of the things that I hope that people took away from it, not just learning about gumbo, but, you know, if you you eat pasta all the time and you are, you know, you have Italian ancestry, I would hope that you would see this film and say, oh, well, how did my great grandmother make pasta? Like if I never made it, let me try to make it. Because I think that there's a lot that goes into cooking. And just like uh, one of the chefs said in the film, there's a story behind every single dish. So regardless of your culture, regardless of where you are, there's a story behind every single dish and why this goes into this, you know? So learning about history and connecting that to food is pretty amazing. Well, it just, it tells us who we are. It, Absolutely. It's such, I mean, food, as you know, even just before you started this, you knew that gumbo was a big part of your family. Right. When you Absolutely. had together, the way it was made and that it brought you all together. And I think that's the thing with food is that it's such a, connector absolutely absolutely is kind of magical absolutely yeah you you talk over food you have people come over you want to feed them you talk people congregate in the kitchen so I mean it's a huge part of people's lives and just fellowshipping foods there absolutely so what would you say as a first-time filmmaker was the hardest like if you had to look back and say oh that was really the most difficult thing what would that be I would say money is usually, I mean, that's why it took two years to make it because it was self-funded. And so as a household, we spent money on it. And that was probably the only thing. I don't think it was as frustrating as it could be when you're making like a narrative film. (laughs) That's even more because at least a documentary especially with this one there were the only time constraint I had for document for this documentary was the uh New Iberia gumbo film the gumbo festival that happened once a year so that was one of those ah you gotta go get it then um and actually another one came around the next year and I thought the film would be done and it wasn't so we could have caught that one too but either way the one that we got was great um I couldn't go because I just had my baby like a week before but uh, it was, I, my best friend slash producing partner did a great job and the shooters did a great job, but that was probably the only time constraint where it was like, no, we have to be here this time. Uh, and, and capturing certain interviews like Miss Leah Chase, where it was like, oh, she's ready next week, let's go. And other people's schedules that were really tight, you know, you kind of, you're on your schedule, but more so on theirs because they are giving their time in there, you know, to be in your documentary and some of them made gumbo just for the documentary. So <laughs> very appreciative of that. Right. I don't, so that's probably the only schedules were the only thing that we kind of had to work out. I don't think it was a huge challenge, but it was challenging enough to where you're mm-hmm. juggling, you know, especially when you do everything yourself as an indie filmmaker, a lot of times you are. So of course I was the producer line producer and writer and scheduler. And, you know, I did transportation and traveling, you know, so all of that, goes into it and I did the um uh what's it called what was I saying oh um recording and you know so when it comes to transcribing so all of that went into it so I would say money and then lack of money allowed me that prevented me from hiring certain people to do certain things I had to do I would say that 
And yes. is your goal with next films to get the money up front and, and use this as sort of a, look what I can do. Now, if you fund it, just imagine what I can do. Exactly. Yes, that is exactly it. Because I feel like for indie filmmakers, the best thing is that we're able to wear so many hats because we have to. A lot of times we don't have the budget. So we can't hire a location manager. So we own location manager. That takes time. Or we can't draw and do story or storyboarding our own stuff, you know, or making phone calls ourselves. That stuff takes time. But also hone skills, you know, that you can whenever you do get a, a chance to hire people, you know, oh, this is what I'm looking for in this person because I know I like it this way, you know? Same thing with editing. Like, I'm not going to, I'm not an editor as far as editors to hire, but I can edit my own stuff, you know? So, and I might continue to edit certain things myself because I know what I'm looking for. So, <laughs> you know, but I'm, you know, I do it because I have to and sort of like to, but, you know, yeah, a bigger budget would definitely, I think, decrease yeah. the amount of time it takes to make it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what, as a, as a um, documentary filmmaker, I know that you write, sort of write the story, um, but you obviously don't write people's comments that, you know, people say what they're gonna say. Did you find that things generally went the way you wrote and expected? Or were there times that you just kind of went, okay, I, here we are. It was every single, I interviewed that in my head okay they're gonna talk about this and every single person did which is amazing but then they also for them gave me a lot more than I wanted so like there are people who are incredibly knowledgeable out there about stuff that you would never think you know that they're knowledgeable about because if you're in mind oh they're a chef so they know how they know this and this and this but then when they know the history behind it you're like oh wow this is amazing um I mean or even like the one of the best parts of the film for me, because I love the shots and I love the fact that she actually said this, but when I interviewed Dr. Jessica Harris, the culinary historian, and she mentioned Supe Kanye, which is, you know, the uh, West African dish, which is their gumbo. And I actually interviewed Chef Serene, who is a Senegalese chef who lives in New Orleans. And so he, I interviewed him first, like months before. And I don't, I don't know if you remember the shot where uh, the gumbo, it's the supercani is on a dish with rice and then he has the red palm oil that he's pouring over it. So she says that in the interview that I did not ask her about it. She just mentioned it. And while she's saying that during the interview, I'm thinking in my head, oh my gosh, this is such a huge moment because I already know I could put that with the footage I already have of him doing. And I was like, this is God that you got. I was like, this is the most perfect. That literally is my favorite shot of the film because- Shot. Um, I, I mean, it's perfect. You would think that I had her do, but I mean, it's the perfect voiceover for that part because she's yeah. describing what he already did. And I'm like, this is amazing. Stuff like that happened a lot. Where like I had in my vision board, oh, okay, I need to interview a sausage guy. Like I remember thinking sausage guy, da 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 da. And I kind of forgot it. Like two months later, I forgot about it because I was focusing on other things with the film. And then um, someone, I, Chef Carolyn in the film, was, we were just talking and she said, oh, well, you need to interview uh, Vance Vackerson. He has his own sausage. And like, we're literally just talking. Then I was like, you know, I've been wanting to interview a sausage guy. I never told her. She just mentioned it. He 
he's another one where we interviewed him and he just starts talking about all this amazing stuff. And that's why he's in the film a little longer because he was saying stuff that was not just connected to sausage. In my head, I was like, I just want him to talk about sausage. But then he just starts talking about other stuff. And I'm like, this is awesome. Can you tell me a little bit about the editing process? Um, and, and I'm gonna explain a little more what I'm looking for. It always occurs to me that as a documentary filmmaker, you must get 15 times more good footage than you want, or even I mean, five times more, that, that people are, are interesting and people have interesting comments. And so my question really is how difficult is it to weed through that and say, okay, this person's fantastic, but I can't let them talk for the hour and a half that they did. I have to cut things out. How difficult yeah. is it to do that? And, and to remove pieces of what people say, even though you love those pieces, I would guess. And tell me if I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong and there really isn't that overflow, but it feels like there could be. That's a lot. That's probably actually the challenging, going back to the challenging question, that's probably the biggest challenge, actually. It's cutting all this amazing conversations that I had. I mean, like I, I would interview people and this is still my dream, by the way, to get like at least five or six people in the room talking in the film in a round table, just having a conversation. That is like my dream post gumbo documentary. But I'm talking to people in the kitchen and like Chef BJ and Gullah Geek Culture and then like, you know, Chef Shereen and my mom and Dr. Harris and just they're, they're talking and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, if they were all in a room together, this would be like the best four hour conversation about every, like it was just but I was like in the kitchen with people for an hour hour and a half and then there's no way you can get all of that information so after you transcribe everything that's when I just I had my my points I wanted to hit and as long as I hit those I would try to you know see what people said that fed off of each other and then I would just plug that in I mean I I could I would love some way somehow to share the 30 extra 30 minute straight through conversation I had with Zareen. I mean, no editing, just straight up 30 minute conversation, but you know, I can't. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. I, it, that just feels to me like it would be very difficult. So it was, yeah. yeah, I appreciate that. So for you, what's next? And well, before I ask that, I want to ask for you, is it documentaries always, or do you also have a, a more of a traditional um, narrative script in mind yeah a lot of narrative scripts in mind <laughs> and web series and shows okay I love documentaries though I think you know if I'm honest with myself I am a journalist first so there's always that I want to learn about everything I mean literally I can learn about something and I'm like oh that'll be a great documentary or I'm telling somebody you should do a documentary on that like you need to bring your camera and go there now like use your phone and record like I'm telling everybody just capture everything uh, but I definitely have a few more documentary ideas for sure. And I think now because we're in quarantine, everyone's being safe. Documentaries are probably a little easier to shoot if it's like one person, you know, you're interviewing your one cameraman and PPE and you're shooting. I feel like that's the safest thing to shoot right now. Yeah. Bit piece by piece. Uh, but as far as narratives, I definitely am uh, developing a show with two other people right now. And so we're almost done with the pilot. So hopefully we'll be able to pitch that soon. And yeah, can you tell us a tiny bit about the near the, the pilot? I know you can't give us the name or anything like that, but we don't even have a name. It's funny. 
which we, we don't, which is great. It's fine. But it's, um, <laughs> uh, it's about it's a coming of age story uh, takes place in the 90s about three African-American girls and their quirkiness going through middle school. So yeah, I want to tell a story. Well, it takes place in Houston. So yeah, it's uh, hopefully we can get that, you know, going post COVID, mm-hmm. everything tightened up, you know, beforehand. Um, but yeah, definitely documentaries. I just don't want to focus just on that. I do love working with actors. Um, and I love, I miss putting chat lists together and like blocking and all that stuff on set that you don't do with documentaries. Okay. Um, so but, don't do that kind of stuff with documentaries because you're not going to tell people exactly where to put their foot. Is that true? Right. That's okay. true. Well, I did not. I know that when it came to what people wanted to wear, I just told them, you know, no whites and no blacks and no like busy okay. stuff. Um, but I mean, I think when we went into people's homes, we did move a couple of lamps here and there, you know, that stuff. But I mean, you know, you don't tell people, say you ask some questions. Some people wanted questions beforehand so they could prepare. Some people were just like, ah, oh, just, you know, come over and I'll just answer whatever. But yeah, it's definitely not as structured as when you're dealing with actors and narratives. And unless you're doing, um, I forgot the name of it, but you know how some documentaries have the uh, playback where you have the reenactment, you're reenacting certain right. things. So that, of course, is, you know, goes into that. But yeah, I definitely want to do both, not just focus on documentaries. Okay. So the projects you're working on right now, you've got this um, pilot. And yes. are you thinking web pilot? Or are you thinking um, show TV okay. show? Yeah, yeah. So it's so, a longer page pilot. Thirty Amazon, minutes. those kind of places. Is that what you're what you're hoping? Yes, that would be awesome. HBO, you awesome. know, just um, yes. And then we are working. Chef Carolyn and I, the woman in the film. We have we were actually shooting a few doc, shooting interviews simultaneously with Gumbo. So it's called 47 Years in the Back of the House. And so she actually has a book that with the same title. We're interviewing black chefs, not just chefs, but people who created recipes that didn't get their credit or their their due. So bringing them to light. And it's not just chefs, sometimes it's Pullman porters, it's maids. So she's the host of that, one of the producers. She has a great energy, great presence so she's the host for that and we actually did a couple of interviews she interviewed Leah Chase again for that as well and we did a couple of rounds and so we have enough footage I think to pitch we've been pitching a little bit so we're trying to get that on as well so I'm excited about that too now is that also a series yes okay a series that'll be like a docuseries okay and same kind of venues or are you thinking of that somewhere else well, right now it was primarily New Orleans. Okay. And I don't, I think right now we'll be focused on the South. I'm not sure if it would be the whole country. Um, but right now what we have so far is primarily taking place in Louisiana. Okay. I love that. Yeah. Anything else? That. Not that that's not enough, but anything else that's sort of. <laughs> you know what? One of the things that we are working on is uh, distribution. So distributing films. So that that's one thing that, like I said earlier with LA, I worked for an international distribution company and went overseas and helped my boss sell some films that he had. 
And so I understood the importance of that. And so that's one thing that I know when it comes to filmmakers, especially indie filmmakers, uh, especially black indie filmmakers trying to get content out there, there needs to be an avenue. And there's not a lot of indie distribution companies out there. There's a lot of great content, but not a lot. So we're working on that as well, trying to have screenings out here. We screened my film twice in Houston and we want to do more, of course, but then COVID happened. So, you know, um, but there's also drive-in. And so we're trying to looking at that as well. So bringing drive-ins back. I like that. Yeah. Me too. Drive yes. I remember that I, from my childhood. It was awesome. It was. And so I'm glad people are doing it. So we're definitely trying to do more of that here too, as well. Very cool. So if you were sort of thinking about talking to young filmmakers, young creatives who are feeling that same pull to do this as you have been, what would your advice be? Sometimes people in the industry have told me this too, where they're like, you know, find your lane, find your niche, find out what you want to do. I think what I'm learning from other creatives is that be open-minded. And so if you like, you know, a certain genre, I would go with that and just start writing. But even if it's like, if you want to do comedy, that's fine. But if you have a horror film in mind, write that too. I would not be, you know, too concerned with just only doing one thing. I know a couple of other uh, legends in the game have said, finish a script, like finish one thing. And that's something that I had to stop because the thing about creatives is we always have so many ideas in our head. Like if I had enough money and manpower to knock out at least five or six projects right now, I absolutely would because I have them in my head and I've written some stuff, but I need, I can't do that well I can't do all of them well so focusing on gumbo really taught me oh wait if I finish something oh look cool so then I can go to the next thing instead of like trying to do multiple things at once so that's my biggest thing is actually finish something so if you want to write a script then finish the script you know like perfect it so then you can have something to show people but then also I've learned that once you have something to show people they're going to ask you just like you asked me so what do you have next or what are you working on right I'm sorry. You okay? The mailman at the door um, did not. <laughs> no, sorry. Yeah. So have something prepared to pitch as well. Okay. Um, or talk about too. I've learned yeah. from what people have said who've been in those meetings. They asked those questions. Yeah, they want to. Well, they want to know are if they do have a relationship with you. Are you going to produce more things that they can use down the line? I think that's Absolutely. part of it. Absolutely. This is an ongoing thing that we're going to be doing. Um, and that's a great, I, I, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I like the, I like your answer because on the one hand you said, finish something, work on it. And so my advice is finish what you're working on, but at yes. the same time, be open to exploring all sorts of avenues. Exactly. And, and, and I absolutely, and something I um, have a friend in Atlanta who's a cinematographer and she mm-hmm. actually just got hired to do um I don't know if it's a film or a web series on mobile and she's never done that before. So she was like, I don't know, because the old school way is not to use your phone. Like even me, I'm so old school. I'm like, I don't want to use my iPhone, but there are films that are being shot on iPhone 11 and they look amazing. So she's open to that. And I think that's really awesome because times are changing and it's not really, like she said in her Facebook post, it's not just about what you're using. It's how are you telling the story through those shots and those colors and lightings. And that's so incredibly important. So 
I also would say be open to the process. Don't just be stuck in, hey, this is the way it's always been done. This is what I've been taught to do only. Let's look around and see how things are changing and try to adapt to what's going on. So besides filmmaking um, and sort of storytelling, because it feels very strongly to me like both of those are kind of key. Um, yes. Besides what are the other, what are your other passions? What are the other things that, that you just love? I love, oh, outside of the industry, just in yeah. general? Just in general. I love, I love reading autobiographies and biographies. So I love learning about people and their process and also love watching TV and movies. And I see that in my oldest kid. Like she loves to be in front of the TV. She knows her ABCs and stuff, everything, but she loves to be in front of the TV. Yep. I noticed that about her. Um, yeah, that's probably just escaping and just whether it's through, you know, I, like I said, I gravitate more towards autobiographies and biographies than like fiction. Okay. Um, but I think I get my fiction through TV and film. Mm -hmm. That's my escape outside of writing my own stuff. Terrific. And what would you say is sort of your philosophy of life? If you had to define it kind of in a nutshell, my philosophy is. My philosophy is don't run away from what you're supposed to do. I like that. So if you are spiritual, I am. I know God will let you know what you're supposed to do. Just do it. Because if you don't, it's going to keep coming. Just, just do it. <laughs> don't run away. I have tried and tried. Um, also, and that goes along with, with, you know, just career path or passion in general, or uh, if you have multiple things you want to do, there's that one idea that you keep thinking about every single day, every single day, every single day. And then this just means you should do it. So, <laughs> yeah. I like that very much. Thank you. And one of the things is it before I, I want to ask you the last question, but before I do that, is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to talk about? Because anything you want to tell us, we want to hear. So I was thinking about, you know, the question where people ask your background and how you got to where you are in your journey, mm -hmm. especially I just, and I'm not going to just say this is just for creatives, but I know that there's never just a straight shot. I mean, I didn't tell you a lot of other stuff that went on in my career path, but I dibbled. I love, I love politics. And so I was in politics for like a year as a, a political strategist. I still love politics. Um, my dream at one point besides the filmmaker was to be like the press secretary, which is hilarious. Yeah, it's crazy. But uh, I probably really would have enjoyed it. But I, I think that, I think it's okay to have a journey that is different from other people's. And one that goes up and down, one where you dibble and dabble in other industries and come back to the one that you really truly love or you're supposed to be in. I think people need to be open to that as well. It's not thinking that they're so far behind because at some point I was like, oh no, I'm so far behind. I should have done it. It's like behind from what? Like, what are you behind uh, from? Like, if you're still alive, do it. Like, what are you doing? So yeah, it's pretty much, like, yeah. So, well, and and don't you think that's part of the creative path is that you do, it? it's, I, I mean, I think as a creative person, it's never straight. It's always yeah. kind of winding and it probably, I would argue makes your filmmaking better 
to have gone these mm-hmm. other directions as well, because your life just got fuller. And so Absolutely. I think, I think that that's, I think that's wonderful advice. Awesome. It's, yeah. Thank you. I, um, stuff you learn, the older you get, the more stuff you do. And then you're like, oh, okay. It's, you're it's wiser in certain areas. Absolutely. But then there's also something when you're younger, you have more guts to do certain things. You know, like it's, it's kind of like a, where you don't, may not know how to do it the right way, you know, or the professional way, but you're, you have more guts to actually ask and you're more bold, I found in certain areas than you are now because you're like, oh, wait a minute, let me do this. Let me think about this before I do this. Whereas 10 years ago, I would just done it. (laughs) And it's good and bad, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, And maybe that's just another lesson is that some of it was bad and that's okay. Mm -hmm. That you're going to do things that later you say, oh, that was not the right path. But that's human. That's being human. Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, as a filmmaker, I would I would suspect that the things you did that weren't the right thing also inform your storytelling and inform the way you look at other people's stories and the way you um, frame things, I would guess. Absolutely, yes. Especially telling things through your point of view or your character's point of view or someone else's point of view, if it's a documentary, I think you know, your experiences do shape how you view art and how you want to craft your art for a particular project or piece. Absolutely. I love that. Um, what I, just before I ask the last question, I just want to say that this has been for me, one of the favorite things about the podcast is that I almost consistently interview just creative people and it's creative people in all sorts of spheres. Um, I interviewed a breathing instructor the other day, but for her, oh. it's all about you know, how did I, how do I research and find out the best breathing strategies? And then how does that inform our lives? And, and I think art is all about that. And I think the filmmaking and, you know, visual arts like painting and uh, ceramics and singing and music and writing music and all of that, um, we can, there's just so much there. And it's so much about your soul and passion and, and defining us as humans. Yeah, it's also therapy sessions. <laughs> absolutely true. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, writing is, you know, that is a therapy session, especially when you're writing with other people. And yeah, you get a lot of stuff out. I quickly want to ask a writing question. Mm-hmm. So are you thinking you'll do some writing that's not film related at some point? Well, we I'm working on a gumbo book that's supposed to go with the film. That's not oh. real. I mean, it's not, it's other people's recipes. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as writing, I don't know. Like I said, my mom thinks I have a book in me. Maybe. I don't know. Not we'll today. <laughs> no, 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 not today. Not today. Today you have films in you. Not yes. A book. <laughs> not a book, but you know, yeah. So, um, I guess I have two more questions if that's okay. No One would yeah. be, is there somebody in the industry in, in any branch of the industry that you would really like to work with? Like, is there someone you think, boy, if I had a chance here's someone I want to work with. Ooh, just one person. I could choose just one person. But I mean, there's a lot. If you can name more than one, if you want to. Okay. So the first person that popped in my head was Robert Townsend, just because he's one of the people who I looked up to as a kid. And I think that a lot of his films at the time were ahead of his time and they weren't appreciated back then. I would love to work with him. Um... 
There are some cinematographers I would love to work with, Kira Kelly, Bradford Young, um, my friend in Atlanta, who is in Atlanta, so can't work together right now. Right. Um, uh, numerous of actors. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's Felicia Rashad, um, Alfred Woodard, Don Cheadle. Uh, that's all I can think of now, even though the list is super long, but. Okay, so that brings me to another question. <laughs> no problem. But I'd like to ask if it's okay. Uh, how do you feel like things right now are for um, directors, producers, writers of color? Do you think things are getting better? I think so, but the numbers are still bad. Um, and I think, you know, and I, and I, and from, from, as a creative, I can see it's obvious to how you can tell which outlets are giving black creatives a chance. And so that's why I mentioned HBO earlier, they are giving deals to black creatives. Um, I'm not saying they're the only ones, but I noticed that they are, I don't, you know, when I look at like a Netflix and I'm looking for stuff for my kids to watch and there's not a lot of us in representation there. What, you know, there there's older content and there's some other content, but then there's still, it's still not enough. I mean, it looks like it is increasing, but I still, I would love to see more of us behind the camera as well. So directors are, you know, we're still having first black women who are directing like action budgets of like millions and millions. And I'm like, it's 2020, what are we doing? Like, yeah, I mean, and they're capable of doing it. You just have to have the chance. And also there's this idea of if there's not a black person or particularly a black woman who is not skilled and whether it's a gaffer or sound or cinematography, there's not a lot of black women cinematographers at all. How are they going to learn? So you have to have that training curve there. So they have to be on set to learn how to not just shoot, but use different things to help them be able to shoot. So, you know, whether it's Steadicam or cranes, I mean, there's so many jobs that I think I know they're capable of doing because I work with people, even on my level, that are insanely talented and they can do what we're seeing, mm -hmm. but it's just, they have to have a chance. So I don't know how that's going to happen. Even, you know, there's people on Twitter who are like, yeah, I want to hire, you know, um, a black person for a story editor and on shows, but then they need, but then like there's a side note that says they need experience in in the room, and we're like, but they can't get in the room to get experience to get the story editor position. So I don't know. Yeah, I appreciate you asking, but uh, no, like yeah. <laughs> there's still yeah. I agree not experience. So thankfully, there are people out there who are trying to raise the percentage. That was a hashtag for a while, and Hollywood here is you know, it was started by two younger people in the industry who are particularly putting uh, black men and women, mentors, matching them with mentors, nice. industry for increase the writing, the TV writers in this community. And then they also just did, um, they're about to do mentorship with Walt Disney mm -hmm. Studios execs. So I, those, those uh, initiatives are pretty amazing and they're doing the best they can to raise the percentage is what they're saying for, you know, black TV writers and black producers and executives. 
So I think honestly, I've always said it starts with who's in the office and behind the scenes. So the content is there. Like there are a lot of black writers and yeah. indie filmmakers who just have to get in there somehow. So. Well, and I don't know if you feel this way, but I, I, my personal feeling about all of this, about the systemic racism and about the fact that, that people aren't in the room is that enough. It, it's just time to change it. And so it's not, for me, it doesn't feel like, well, slowly we're going to work into that. And it's like just time to say no. It's yeah. just, yeah. And, and there's no, we don't have any more time to wait for that. It should have been done long ago and it's ridiculous. And so I'm so thankful that things are changing, but I think they need to change now. I, I think that yeah, now it's a time. And it needs yes. to be. And it, and it needs to be not a Band-Aid kind of, we're going to train seven. See what we did? <laughs> it needs to be right. nice. The, the framework has to change so that you are as welcome in the room as anyone else. Absolutely. I mean, and, and not just, you know, like people will say, uh, people are being hired for diversity in the room, but it's like, okay, well, are you hearing what I'm saying? Are you taking these notes and developing this character who is Black in the hood or Black in the suburbs and would they say this, would they do this? How would their relationship with their mother and their friends be? Because I've lived this, I know what it's like to mm -hmm. be black in the suburbs and you know what I'm saying? So I think that feeds into it, you know, as well. And I think, you know, thankfully there are shows out there who are, which are thriving that have been thriving um, in certain networks. And so they can see that, hey, a, a black woman can create a show and have a black showrunner and have majority black writers and it still thrives and black people like to watch TV and films and we will pay to do that. So there's definitely has always been a niche and also there's different stories that have been told. I mean, there's, I'm not sure if, how much TV you watched, but um, with uh, Prentice Penny is a showrunner for Insecure mm -hmm. and he created the movie, he wrote the movie based on someone's life called Uncorked. And so it's about a black man who pursuing similar, similar, Similay, Similay is the name with the, you know, the wine experts. Yeah, yeah. And so I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, but yeah. <laughs> so just having a story about a black man who did that is pretty awesome. Like I knew about a Similay because my husband makes beer. So we mentioned it before, but I mean, seeing black people in this, a different light, it's like, okay, yeah, we are, we like wine. We, we make wine. We, <laughs> you know, we drink wine. So great. Yeah, like let's see some other stuff that we do. What else, you know? So, yeah, yeah. Um, that's part of the whole, you know, with my writers, friends, and writers who are coming, you know, coming a coming of age story. There's not enough coming of age shows mm -hmm. or films. There are they are there. They've been there for a long time. Starting with you know, Crooklyn is one of them with Spike Lee. Yeah. Um. I mean, but there's other ones that I could point out too. But it's just not enough to where you're like clicking on TV or any you know, streaming network and you have a plethora of stories about us that are just regular stories, you know? Well, and I, I think that what's interesting for me is that it's way beyond this. So it's the industry itself. It's the directors and the producers and the actors and um, the writers. And then it's also the critics and it's the interviewers and it's the, um, it, it after the film fest the other day, um, one of the people that had created a film, um, part, one of the people who was in her documentary was Native American and she was being interviewed by us as well. And they made a comment afterward that my two colleagues who are both women of color actually conducted the interview um, 
because I thought that would be a good thing. And she just made a comment that it's so hard to always be the minority in the room that, to, yeah. you know, anytime she goes to an interview, she is almost always the only woman of color of any sort in wow. that room during that interview. And so I think, I think that it's the big picture. It's, it's yes. the expansion of that beyond just, oh, good. We have a director who's a person of color. It's the whole piece and looking at how do we make sure that people are in every position and so that people can be spoken to by, by other people that, that they feel really do get them and really do understand what they're talking about. And, um, and so that children see then, oh, look, I could be a film critic. That's always interested me, but yeah. I don't see anybody like me as right. a film critic, so I can't do it. Um, that would be I, amazing. I, not to get on a soapbox, I apologize. No, that. please don't. I could talk about this all day. I think that, you know, Nia Long has been very vocal about uh, wanting Black people on the, behind the scenes, particularly Black women. Taraji P. Henson has been very vocal about it. I think Taraji at one point said she only had two Black DPs on um, I, I think it was only two at the time. And then Nia Long's recent film, Fatal Affair on Netflix with Omar Epps. It was a um, white director. I think the screenwriter was white originally, but when they did rewrite, she was like, no, I want a black woman to be on the staff for writing. And then that. And so for her in her position, because she's been in the game for so long and knows so many people, people like her can actually be just as vocal and say, no, I'm going to be on this film if you hire this person as a gaffer or a sound. Because it is, I mean, key positions like gaffer, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with these terms, forgive me. Um, I, you can explain what it is. I'm, I'm a little familiar, but. Okay, they do lights. So they're like the head lighting people um, or a sound engineer mm-hmm. on set. There's not a lot of black people that do that. So, so- on my short film, I'm sorry. I just said it's everywhere. It's the whole picture. Everywhere. Because, you know, a lot of people, when you get into the film industry, you do direct. You know, obviously you're like, I want to do that because you get to do everything. But I mean, it still needs to, I mean, there are actors, like it is everywhere. I mean, there, and just so you know, just like you said, film critic, now I've never have thought about being a film critic. I mean, that you get to watch films and critique it for fun. Like that is the best freaking job. I don't even know. <laughs> like I don't even, but there's a Black Film Critics Association. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was created in 2012, 13 or something. Yeah. Um, because people have called on that too. People have called on Black hairstylists and makeup artists for Black actors so they can know what to do with their hair. You know, it's little stuff that is so, so important. So that people just, ah, whatever, figure it out. And it's like, no, this is, also very important, you know, to have people of color in the background. I mean, it was refreshing to even see, um, I forgot the name, Love You Maybe, I forgot the name of that movie, it's all a cast, yes. always maybe, maybe, yes, love that, you never see it, yes, um, or Crazy Rich Asians, like you never get to see, and so I'm happy to see minorities carry films where you know hey this Asians have lives too and they live and black people have lives too and we live you know like it's just a story and that's we're just telling a story you know so I'm looking forward to not just having one or two breakout black films a year that we normally have had (laughs) it's just like makes so much sense yes 
There's not just one, one or two, one or two of you in the country. So right. more than one films makes sense. Um, you yeah. were going to say something about your own film, but did you have um, did you have people doing lighting? Did you have people you were working with? Well, so yes. I was directing a short film that one of my friends wrote. And of course that got pushed back three times because of COVID. So it's kind of in holding, it's fully casted and everything. Like we were getting ready to shoot and we can't, which is fine. Um, And so my goal was I want an all black crew and everything else is easy except for the gaffer and the sounds. And of course I was staying local, even if it was in Texas and we would have helped with, you know, transportation. Um, So we're, we didn't have the budget to hire somebody from like LA or New York or Chicago. Um, but even then it was really hard. And so what I chose to do was I was like, okay, so the only other people I know who know lighting very well are photographers. Mm-hmm. I was like, they obviously know how to light. And so one of the friends of the writer is a photographer. So he was like, I've never been on set, but I definitely want to you know, learn. I'm like, well, you have lights, you have multiple lights and you know how to light. So it's the same thing. It's just the camera rolling instead of still. And so sound engineer, when we went to do our uh, voiceover for the promo for the film, I had like a little promo that the writer did for the film. And so we went to his house and did the studios in his house. And I was like, hey, have you ever been on set? And he was like, no, but I want to do it. So I'm like, if he knows how to capture sound already, he knows how to mix it. Clearly he's the best person to be on set anyway, because if we need to do ADR in the studio, he can just mix it. And so I'm like, okay, well, these two people have never been on set but I trust them fully with their job. Like it's just that easy and I'm going to pay them. And we had pre-production meetings literally a week before we had to cancel, but they were giving good feedback as if they've done it before. So I felt incredibly comfortable, but I'm like, if you just take the chance with people who know their stuff, even if, I mean, you know, and even if I had a bigger budget to work with, you know, an experienced founder, I still would have had them on set to learn, you know, so they can do more of this. And so we won't, can they can get more jobs in their respective field if they choose to continue to do film so that's all I want to say about that but that's important because it's that thinking outside the box in order to include a wider swath of people and and as you said people know until they've been allowed on the set and until they've been in the room they can't know how to be in the room and so that's broaden that and make it possible exactly absolutely I plan on my girls whenever they get, especially after COVID, you know, I plan on having my oldest one hold a slate. Like you're going to be a slate for my films and learn. I love that. Even if you don't want to do this, but you're going to learn what mommy does and we're going to feel that and you're going to help out. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So the last question I ask some people um, generally is tell me a story from your life. And I always like to preface that by saying it doesn't have to be the story. It doesn't have to have a lesson, although it can if, Mm-hmm. That's the story you choose. But I want it to be something that feels like you. So if you're looking back and just a story that feels like it's yours, if that makes sense, that's yes. what I want. So the one story that popped in my head, I don't know if this qualifies. So let me know if this is Everything totally off. When I went to Poland to help my boss, um, when I worked for an international distribution company, we were went, going to Poland first. And then Greece after that for a couple of days. We were in Poland for a week. And so while he was in meetings, my job at that particular day was to get a visa because he was Turkish. So I needed to get a visa while in Poland. So I was on a time crunch because I think it took like two days, but I had to get there at a certain time. So I took a car 
there to the embassy. Get it done. And I had to come back. And so the card, the number that I call in the car, I'm supposed to call this number again so they can come pick me up a call. They weren't picking up the phone. So I'm starting to freak out. We're in Poland. I don't know any Polish. I don't know the language at all. So I'm like, okay, I have no clue. So I like held down a car. Um, can you hear me? Oh yeah. I held down a car and guy comes and I'm trying to talk to him. I mean, and he's talking to me in Polish and I'm talking to him in English and I just keep saying the name of the hotel. I think we're at a Marriott. And I was like, Marriott, duh, duh. this long story short, I got to where I need to go. And I remember feeling, man, I'm in another country. I've traveled before, but I always knew a little bit of the language. And I was, I was always immersed in the culture. I never just stayed where tourists go because I like to see how people live. And so that was the only experience I've ever had where I, the guy, the man and I didn't know what we were saying, but we knew exactly what we were saying. Like it was just a really interesting interaction where we're speaking different languages, but we understood each other perfectly. And I got in the car and he knew exactly where I need to go. Um, even with not exactly knowing exactly where the hotel was either. Like I remember not, I wasn't even scared. I don't know what I was thinking. I mean, maybe it was because I was in my twenties, but I was just like, this is where I need to go. We were talking back and forth. And so I, that was the first story that popped in my head. I like that. And I, I, I think it, it sort of fits your life of trying new things and trusting that yeah. there was something human in your connection with him and that you were figuring it out. Absolutely. So I like it. It's a perfect story. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you so much for sharing it. No problem. No problem. Well, this has been just lovely. Thank you so much for thank coming you. on the show. I feel like we could talk about another four hours. Absolutely. And yes. <laughs> I don't think there's any doubt that we could. Um, right. We are um, putting together probably some monthly um, conferences that will cover things like everything we've talked about and I may okay. very well invite you to come back and please do please do I appreciate um, it your voice is, is important and interesting and I thank think you. you're you're just smart and thank um, you I appreciate it we, I'd loved having you so I may be in touch again to invite you to something Absolutely. else but please I will do. also for your films and make sure you let us know let me okay. know when okay out because I would love to promote them and um if gumbo is any indication, which I think it is, I think I'm going to enjoy everything you put. Thank you. Out. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for, again, screening the film and allowing people to see it because any publicity, any way that my art can, you know, reach people, evoke conversation, educate people. I'm thankful for that. You know, it's done my job. Like I always tell my friends who are creative, I'm like, your projects are bigger than you. It's not just about you. So if you start it, finish it, you got to give your idea, do it because you're a vessel. So keep, keep doing it. So yeah, it's to inspire and educate other people and, you know, lift yeah. other people up. So yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, so thank you. Thank you very much. And thanks for being here, everybody. This is inclusive talks with, I just completely went blank on your name for a second. Alyssa Rochelle. Yes. <laughs> inclusive talks with Alyssa Rochelle, really talented filmmaker. And we will watch for her films in the future and gumbo is hopefully going to be out there soon so that you can see it wherever you are thank Absolutely. you Lisa. thank you Lori. i appreciate it it's good talking to you you too thank you
if she's a mountain